on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I think that there's a lot of men that assert, but don't have the lens to assert through. So they don't have a feminine um, precept to really commit to, to serve the, the needs of the feminine. So they get either shut down or frustrated or domesticated in that way. And they lose that, 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 that power mm. to serve. I, I understand the caution because unfettered male assertiveness is, yeah, it's a great destructive force and it's, uh, yeah, it can really, uh, be painful. But we can't lose that fire as long as we contain it, cultivate it, but then serve the feminine. And, and, and I don't just mean the women, but I mean the actual needs of nature. So I think that is a, a, a very important thing. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. This is a very special episode, recorded only a few days ago from the front lines of the Ferry Creek Blockade, a peaceful eight-month occupation to prevent the logging of some of the last remaining old-growth forest on Vancouver Island, Canada. I've been allied with the effort these last few months, including releasing a short film in collaboration with the Mamas Movement, weaving voices of Indigenous elders like Bill Jones of the Pachydot Nation, alongside activists and children. Check the show notes for a link to watch the film. On April 1st, the BC court granted an injunction to the logging company Teal Jones, which means they are legally able to have the forest protectors arrested so they can continue their industrial destruction. Luckily, the movement continues to grow exponentially, with creative and positive support pouring in from around the world. This past weekend, I joined the blockade for the first time and experience the beauty within the old growth trees, as well as the human community that has taken root. I sat down in the midst of a clear cut to interview Yogi Shambhu, a musician, healer, and longtime member of the Rainforest Flying Squad, who were the initial catalyzers of the blockade. In our conversation today, he shares of his spiritual upbringing in rural Ontario, being surrounded by powerful women in his family. He speaks of his many years exploring Tantra, as well as becoming a professional mystic offering healing wherever he was called. Shambhu reflects on his mythic models for masculinity, including the joy of coming to right service with the Great Mother, and how spiritual practice can best prepare one for generative conflict. And finally, we reflect on the stories that seeded us with an environmental consciousness in our youth, and how these flowers might bloom in our time of ecocide and evolution. And now, enjoy my conversation with Yogi Shambhu. Welcome, Yogi Shambhu, to the show. Thank you so much for having me out here in this beautiful clear cut. <laughs> That's a perfect segue because... I like to ask my guests to share a little of where they are in this moment. 
Mm, it's spiritually, geographically, uh, visually, anything that feels called to be shared. I'm here on a Sunday at the headquarters of the Ferry Creek Blockade, and uh, we are in one of, uh, we're just off a shoulder off the road here at Granite, Maine, which is a logging road, and we're in the midst of a clear cut, and uh, around us, like large animals, uh, are uh, these slash piles. So big piles of, of, of waste wood. And uh, right behind you is a beautiful creek and uh, just a few little trees that are clinging to the edge of it. And how do you feel in this moment sitting amongst this destruction and yet in the face of the possibility it might be different? I feel devastated and relieved at the same time. I feel devastated because of um, knowing that this area will never be what it was. Well, once it's cut, it gets so dry, but relieved because I am actually closer to the reality of what's happening, and really there's no buffer right now between the reality of industrial resource extraction in Canada um, and myself, so... That's that's actually very rightful. It feels very embracing. Can you share a little of your role here uh, at you know what is now broadly becoming known as the Ferry Creek Blockade or movement or you know for someone that first hearing this you know for the first time Canadian or, or even around the world if you could give a just an overview of this moment you know maybe not too much info that might uh, leave them you know, lost in the details, but enough of the kind of mythic, what is this moment mythically? Yes, this is the last stand for the last stand of ancient uh, rainforest of wilderness here on southern Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And we're on Pashidat territory, Dididat territory here. And uh, we are, um, there is a network of people who are facilitating um, the blocking, the civil disobedience required to pause the saw uh, here, because there is a lot of talk in saw that has happened over decades within the logging industry. And so we are asking to pause the saw on ancient uh, rainforest cutting, clear cutting of that. And so uh, we're called the Rainforest Flying Squad. And uh, there are hundreds of people that move in and out of the movement. And there are some that stay for longer. And uh, But especially now that we've just been served an injunction and the possibility of arrests were made, we have hundreds of people coming out who didn't have the time to maintain a blockade. They have their lives in the city, in life. But they're coming out. And the first thing they say is, I am here to be arrested if I have to, to stand for the wilderness. And we're finding this now splinter groups, uh, inspired groups coming uh, from all over the island, in fact. And so, it, and on the mainland as well. So we have a lot of, uh, it's the watershed moment. Uh, and finally, something that is real and dire enough that people can sink their teeth into. There's something I heard from Mindman Martin Shaw, the storyteller, said something like, you can't save the world, but you can save, you know, that particular, or you can try it. You can, you can develop a relationship with that particular place. 
And so I think in some ways, perhaps the environmental movement has often been this, can be really ambiguous, you know, if we're trying to, quote, save it all, you know, but sometimes people have a hard to have that emotional attachment that really makes them care. And I wonder for you to say too, like, what is it about this particular grove or this particular um, last stand, right, that perhaps people can feel a, more of a relational willingness, you know, to, to be involved or to, to awaken? We've been very isolated and we're coming out of a very isolated time when we're asked to farm out not only our concerns but our solutions and have a distance from them. And th people are finding that I can do something about my area. This is only a couple of hours from the capital of British Columbia. And this is something I've, a place I've never been to. Perhaps uh, there's a lot of assumption that old growth logging is already passed. And so the shock and the horror of it, the audacity of cutting the last 2% of high production old growth is so uh, shocking to people that it thrusts them into action, I find. And I think for me, it's direct confrontation, having dignified confrontation of opposing views it's a wonderful um a counter move for counterculture that if you don't disagree with someone well you just cancel them but here because they're affecting our wilderness so much we can't just cancel them out and in fact we have to continue and intensify our intimacy mm. so a lot so this has been very much and uh, we are showing up on the land and being present with these actions these people hmm. that's a really powerful frame i hadn't quite heard like that this um that the in a way the opposite of cancel culture is intimacy or maybe that's what i heard right and how you're right that there is um, some critiques of cancel culture has been almost like it's a tool for the very culture that they're trying to cancel essentially domination like you know canceling out or dismissing or or discarding and yet i hear you saying actually you know that that intimacy uh, has the possibility of some kind of change and the and the tolerance it takes to not only uh face your own aversion and uh, those signs of anxiety that come with speaking plainly speaking uh, and speaking opposing views as well as the tolerance of uh people's reactive first and second conversations it's been amazing to be on those roads and stopping uh, work at 5.30 in the morning and and being so present and uh, seeing that they're actually evolving over time. The conversation is evolving and uh, the, the stance may be softening or, yeah. Wow. You made me think of, I referenced it earlier, uh, Bill Plotkin, his work, you know, Soulcraft and... and other books like Wild Mind, but he talks about that in a healthy adolescent development, um, in a culture that one could say is an intact, sort of life-centric culture, that kids don't grow up in the absence of developing a real deep, I think he calls it like an eco, like an eco-conscience in a way, right? And that in a culture like the dominant culture, which largely keeps apart uh, the existence, you know, social existence or kids from, from nature, relationship to nature, it's like they almost have to have an eco awakening later in life to kind of like shatter, right, the illusion of separation. And yet he also says that it's actually not a given at all that any, you know, you, there's a lot of adults, of course, have never had it. So in some ways they have a, in, they can't reference even the like, why would you care so much about a tree? There's no 
place to to experience their own direct experience let's say but i'm curious for you again did you grow up feeling this way you know in terms of relation was it awakening that came later i'd love to hear a bit more about your uh earlier story i i was born i believe a, a real bushman you know i really loved the wilderness but i was clinging to the edges of the industrial farm landscape in uh, southwestern Ontario. And yet we were blessed to have in proximity to us uh, Guelph and Hamilton, Ontario, the uh, city of waterfalls, and this gorgeous um, escarpment. But yet what was happening, the G- the GMO farming, the, mo- the monocropping, you know, they would actually spray over our house and start in our backyard and the backyard was white with chemicals and so the uh, the great desire for me to to be around the trees just the few trees that were there and looking at how um to this town used to be alive this town used to be something that was serviced by the railway and yet was cut off mm-hmm. And so when the railway stopped, our little hamlet stopped living and the farms started to get uh, less and less family farms and more and more industrial to the point where we realized there was one or two families that were owning the whole area and dictating the uh, fate of the water table, etc. And so for us to reconcile our own water became very important because uh, the town actually went to a collective water and failed and uh, and we were one of the only people left with water in the whole region and so that was an early lesson on uh, unless a human is forced to reconcile their own needs in the immediate environment i don't trust the human psyche to actually be able to curate that and, and stay within the lanes of health and and longevity so yeah and by that meaning, like um, sort of decisions being made in boardrooms and things for ecosystems far away from, yeah. Yes, yeah. or even, you know, if we are not getting our food as much locally, how much can we actually say that it's reconciled? You know, if you have organic food being fed by a Colorado river that's being drained, uh, you know, and then shipped all the way across to Ontario, that is, you know, that that is a lot of pain to it. And so, and, but the human mind, I don't think, can, can keep things real unless it's right in front of them. And they don't care about people unless they know them. And so uh, that's why the local movement became such an important theme for me. And that's what I was looking, when I moved to Vancouver Island, I was looking for uh, a, a way to pay my rent here. And it was first working with the fish farm fight in the Broughton and now here with the old growth what was the call out west then because I know a lot of Ontarians end up feeling the call and yeah for you was it you saw photos or you talk to people or just you know you heard the whispers of I we came when I was 12 uh, 13 and I was very you know the person that had the greatest influence on me my parents were were craftspeople and we we hosted craftsmen and artists from around the world and there was a west coast young uh, craftsman from Hornby Island and he uh, lived amongst our family for three or four years so when he finally moved back uh, to the west coast uh, we visited him and wow 
I was between the bandanas around, you know, all up their uh, their jeans and their, you know, the cool haircuts and the and all of it. You know, it was like a hipster's lumberjack wonderland around here. And I, I felt when I was in my late twenties, I finally came out here again, and it was it was a, a, a grazing ground for black sheep. All the black sheep came, and it seemed like there was a, a a psychic block that happened with the mountains that your previous influence couldn't quite get through. So you had time to to build your own experience. And so, uh, though I've gone back and forth and lived in both areas, this truly is uh, this this contains a magic. There's a, a lot of people with a lot of idealism and a lot of skills. Great craftspeople here. I understand the spirituality has also been a deep thread for you. Yeah, and I'd love to hear more about how you came to that and, and your practice and you know how you see your own spiritual development over the years. My family, uh, my uncle's a sadhu, a swami in India, and he was a great influence to me. And he's been there for 45 years or so. And uh, my family, though, my uh, grandmother read tea leaves and was uh, a, a great uh, Ukrainian uh, mystic in her own right. And people would come to her for visions and sights and things. And uh, my family, actually, they were very ill, a bit like the canary in the coal mine. Mm. And because my sisters uh, both became quite ill, uh, my uh, mother was forced to go into the natural health world and see how she could help them. And uh, through natural health therapies, they were able to cure incurable things. Uh, and uh, so with that, suddenly I was surrounded by a coven, a functioning coven of herbalists, of of uh, really of uh, what what people would call witches in the olden days of folk medicine, meditation, and also then we were steeped in. When I was twelve, I became obsessed with the um, California natural health practices and Paul Bragg. And my grandmother was a great faster and disciple of Paul Bragg. So she would fast for three days a week. For 30 years, she did this. And uh, and so we naturally fell into that. So by the time I was 13, I was applying pranayamas and cleansing practices and uh, then studying mysticism. So because of my training, I... I took training with this coven uh, and took certification in acupressure and herbalism and nutrition, etc. Then I actually started to uh, become a, uh, a professional mystic, if you will, and saw every strata of society from lawyers and doctors, CEOs to, you know, just very sick people. And we would actually have uh, you know, different people from the Mennonite community, different farmers. So we had very salt-of-the-earth people who were desperate would come to me and, and uh, the person that was apprenticing me, the doctor. And by the time I was 18, I was a professional and I became a death facilitator and then a... Uh, and um, then an exorcist and worked doing poltergeist uh, removals and things like this and worked with the Catholic Church doing removals in certain spaces and worked with nuns. And then I, uh, and then I moved into private practice after I, I did a long stint of touring. 
So really, I was working with people who were very desperate, who were already working with health practitioners. Mm. And I've been in full-time practice as that, uh, working with people from around the world, uh, mostly on the phone now. Mm. And so I do energy work by phone and yogic. uh, I do meditation training and things like that for people. So basically like a psychic CrossFit (laughs) for people. (laughs) Wow. I mean... There's so many trails I want to chase down there, but uh, I mean, I'd love to hear just a little bit about that time or the time even when you say people would come to you and like, what are just some examples that you'd be like, oh yeah, we can help you with that. Or, you know, like what were the kind of things that people were asking for? Yeah. So people would ask for, uh, say, inflammatory conditions, say, for example, um, actually my, my family has since become my sister Julie Danilek is one of the great inflammation experts of Canada so my whole family actually has has, has built and carried their capacities forward um, and so for, for myself I work a lot with uh, different with the psychosomatic underpinnings of many different things so I work with people for, with uh, different illnesses never as their medical care but always as their supplementary care. Mm. Uh, and so that I allow people to pierce the veil of their own tension. And, and then we are able to travel deeper into the body and basically help them breathe out their conflicts in, inside of their body and reinvigorate their cheekiness mm. and to become muscular spiritually. Uh, a lot of people come to me who are very damp. They're very o- o- overwhelmed with their emotions. So it's a bit like a, fo- a football pileup. So we're able to rapidly uh, take all the strains and, and, and crises of their life, separate them mm. so that they can find the eye in the, the, the storm. Yeah, that's I with an I, not A-E-Y-E. <laughs> well, you said something like reinvigorate their cheekiness or something like that? Yes, like exactly. It's a, it's kind of a humor or like a lightness? A, a lightness, but also a sass, a certain confidence about themselves. A lot of what I prescribe is uh, very consistent but short practices so that people can keep uh, you know, doing their breathing practices, but also praying, invoking, and, and having a prayer for resolution. That's more open-ended. Uh, but really trying to program and letting their bodies know, like a homeopathic, this is what's wrong with me, and this is what needs attention. So please, Grace, let's let, let's do this together. I have a lot to do and serve. Yeah. So, I'm curious to know what was your relationship to masculinity through your upbringing. You know, where the was it a topic at all you wondered about? Was there other models that you saw? You know, I think you mentioned Paul Bragg, and all I know from you know the Bragg's uh, sauce, or his, he seemed like kind of a classic strongman character. Um, but are there other influences you had, you know, that you actually looked to? Right, oh, for, absolutely, yeah. He Man, but also the Smurfs, which is an interesting thing. Mm. <laughs> I really was raised. I had two uh, very strong uh, sisters uh, who are older than me. I'm the baby of three. My mother, very strong uh, and very confident uh, master artist person. And my father was very busy as well, but a very loving man and always hugged and always, you know, uh, physical contact was always there, you know, which was really powerful. I uh, very quickly 
the people of authority were uh, the women uh, in my life from an education standpoint because they were the wise women and uh, my teachers. And so actually I was of the minority. The men were really of minority, but also very balanced men a lot of the time. But at the same time, I spent, uh, I was raised in a town of 500 people. And I, I still, to this day, I hear an F-150 and I feel a little anxiety in me. I am, uh, I'm also uh, a bisexual. And so that really has been a, uh, a journey for me where in a lot of ways feeling twin spirited, I feel a lot of, I feel more feminine than, than a lot of feminine and more masculine than a lot of masculine. I have a lot of both. And so being able to navigate that experience and also having, seeing how much femininity in people's personality was pushed under the rug and expressed covertly uh, with a certain amount of frustration in my upbringing too. Mm. And so, yeah, really um, dealing with uh, wanting to be as overt and blatant as possible, having been born with quite an avant-garde karma, you know? Yeah, I'm... uh, I am quite wild, but quite relatable. A bit of a reconciled redneck, I hope. <laughs> well, yeah, what comes to me is a curiosity, too, of what, what sort of patterns would you notice then now? Because like, as you say, you're kind of in this ability to, to encounter you know, both worlds, yeah, encountering women or encountering men. And like, what are some of the patterns? I'm also drawing from your you know, spiritual practice. Did you notice, say, that tend to constellate to men in this culture? let's say like this similar maladies or similar repressions or similar, mm-hmm. you know, what were some of the patterns that you find you keep noticing? Great, great tensions in the head and the pelvis mm. oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see a lot of the men uh, losing relationship to the lower half of their body. And, and that is becomes a real difficulty as well, as well as the prolapsing of the abdomen in general and, and losing that uh, commitment to uh, staying strong, integral. Um, I think that there's a lot of men that assert but don't have the lens to assert through. So they don't have a feminine um, precept to really commit to to serve the, the needs of the feminine so that they get either shut down or frustrated or domesticated in that way and they lose that, 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 that power mm. to serve. Um, and I, I understand the caution because unfettered male assertiveness is, yeah, it, it's a great destructive force and it's, mm. uh, yeah, it can really uh, be painful. But we can't lose that fire as long as we contain it, cultivate it, but then serve the feminine. And, and, and I don't just mean the women, but I mean the actual needs of nature mm. and the needs of the right now. Mm. So I think that is a, a, a very important thing. Something I've recognized too, that, that the, a lot of men's work now uh, often has this personal growth paradigm, right? And, and biohacking and optimization and you know all this sort of like yeah how to be more powerful in some ways more dominant you know and and in some ways feels it's got a lot of inspiration you know or a lot of helium as one of my teachers would say uh but that there's a kind of necessary grounding that feels vital 
least I'm observing, um, around, you know, what's it for, right? Like, what's this, what's this personal cultivation or what's this personal growth for? And you just mentioned as well this kind of uh, attunement to the needs of nature, actually, as... And I just love to spend a bit of time there as, like... Because for me, it's... In some ways, it can graze over. People can just kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. But then it feels like it goes so deep because so much of modern-day men's work in culture or in a culture that doesn't have its own ancestral lines intact anymore, like a deep sense of what it actually means to belong to a place, of which, you know, my understanding through my teachers, too, I've really tried to get that in my head of, like, to be indigenous means to actually be from somewhere, right? And, and there's, of course, we're all indigenous to earth, you know, in some ways, but oftentimes whoever says that usually isn't someone that is also very, you know, grounded to a specific place. And it's a kind of catch-all for like, yeah, you know, we're all great. We're all indigenous. So I guess I'm trying to say is I feel like I'd love to hear from you too about how that clarity stayed with you as, you know, the spiritual practice developed, but also a kind of like, but wait, like nature actually needs us. Like it's not an idea, especially in the face of a a destructive economic system, you know, that essentially knows no limits. Yes. We are moved to achieve and testosterone gives us that desire but what are we achieving and um for me i feel most comfortable being yoked yoked like an oxen you know and that i am a beast of burden i do move and i and i keep moving all day long serving and in this case i'm serving the greatest intelligences within the matriarchs here of this movement and that's where i find myself most most comfortable and so for us to be able to break from the uh, or reconsider the other options, you know, are we serving just the industriousness? Are we actually going to be an entrepreneur? And is that the greatest incarnation? Is that the greatest model to engorge with our activity? Or are we going to animate another wheel? And and where is that wheel going? And And is that wheel actually giving us the uh the actual needs you know what what we actually need and for me a sustainable community is created through serving the um through the local uh, culture and and i i've spent time building my practice and it's very important i believe to become enough of a autonomous being that you can be a well-trained in- instrumentalist but the ultimate dest- uh, destiny is to join the choir to join the orchestra and so t- to be able to have that play between distinction and cohesion that takes the next level of skill and the, the, so where you mentioned uh, the adolescent and moving from distinguishment to uh, being uh, integrated back into the culture. And in Tantra, for us, there's samadhi, which is you're going up the chakras into this great state of oneness. But then you actually come back into the world and descend. You, your, uh, your kundalini goes back into the second chakra, which is community and family. Mm. And you live out your karmas, and that's called avatar. And so that, to me, is the model. Mm. Wow. I'd love to hear more about that. But, yeah, there's something... Like, I've tracked a lot of spiritual practice, you know, large incorporated from the East and often misunderstood or sort of mis- misappropriated. Um, you know, I, I dabbled a bit in Buddhism, you know, in my younger years and was kind of like, this is it, 
you know, this is the thing. And in some ways in a culture which is also, you know, perpetuated on an economic system that itself is very extractive and, and destructive, it's like it ends up being a kind of, you know, numbing agent, I feel, of a kind of, it's all, you know, it's all one, you know, kind of thing. And so in some sense, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the heart of spiritual bypassing. And I wonder what you might see, how you see that now acting out within, you know, both the spiritual movement um, and even the activist movement, you know, like what is the shadows there of not having done enough spiritual work, let's say, and how that shows up, you know, destructively, let's say within movements. Oh, I became a campaigner, uh, a um, fundraising coordinator uh, in Hamilton, Ontario for Greenpeace. Uh-huh. And Wow. At that time, actually, I was in private practice as well, doing marriage counseling. And so here I was doing marriage counseling, and then I go into the office, I was like, wow, we're all talking about our parents right now. And, (laughs) you know, your interactions and relationship with conflict and assertion really do follow you. And so that's a, uh, that, that has become a, a powerful tool is, is, uh, being able to watch people from a trauma informed lens and see where people check out of conversations and people, um, and so to be able to actually stay in conversations for an environmentalist again, I think is very, very important. Mm. Yeah. We don't want to see what we see, uh, you know, stateside, you know, Democrat, Republican, mm-hmm. yeah, and so that's a that's a big part of it. I was just reflecting recently too on a clip I saw of uh, it was Standing Rock, and there was I think it was an Indigenous fellow confronting one of the SWAT team or whoever you know that were deployed there, and it was a really powerful uh, encounter because the the Indigenous fellow was he had a certain energy which is very achieved I think right which was you don't really want to be doing this, you know, to this SWAT guy who was kind of, you could tell he was, you know, ready, ready to rumble, right? And and the other fellow had a very, like, it was this powerful presence, and yet he was also not othering this fellow, right? Saying, you know, you're an awful person too. I can't, you know, can't believe you do this. But there was, there was something there, and I felt like there was a key there in what I was seeing of almost like inviting in possibility to that moment when opposition can often be, um, it could just create more conflict, right? Or, or more inflexibility. But again, I wonder if you had that kind of experiences. Yeah, would you, what would you say is the promise there of the possibility when yeah. we do have to confront systems of power and, and those that perpetuate it? Is to be able to tolerate that moment of adrenaline that happens and also not believe the first things that come out. You know, which is a big thing. I've had many conversations within this blockade of, uh, of well, don't you want to let an honest person work and pay, you know, the bills? And then us pausing for a moment and them saying, well, it's, it's not that I completely disagree with you. But if I had shirked away and had distance right off the bat I wouldn't have actually allowed myself to hear the this and that because we're so clued into this or that as a model for uh, a green you know for conversation and so it's this and that and uh, being uh, my background of, of being around so many you know us redneck hicks you know really some, some, some of those spiritual people are actually uh, 
cloaked in plaid and gumboots. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a powerful image. Um, I wonder what does it take as well, or has it been for you to, to be able to, to stand there, like you said, and be aware of one's own reactivity, let's say, or, or sort of easy um, uh, straw manning, you know, of the other and, and sort of dismiss them or, or to decide that that's what they are and that's it. You know, like what kind of practices were helpful? The pratyahara, if you know that term, which is sensory withdrawal, has been very important to be able to regulate my system throughout this time. And also to, to be able to uh, do pranayamas that introduce energy back in. Because what first disappears within your personality as you get tired is it a you know a spiritual uh, wakefulness? Is it a compassion? Is it you know that wick? Uh, you know, are you losing actually the candle wax, and then you just have a wick there exposed? Mm. And so this allows me to have more of a buffer and to come from my full personality more. So I'm actually very, uh, very relentless and repetitive. So I have three practices a day that I continue to work throughout time. Hmm. Yeah, and that's been absolutely critical because we're maintaining ourselves. We really want to be functional and engaged. And also our own traumas are being triggered and so to be able to actually go off and uh, for me, it's been cold water bathing as well, because if I can get my head under and really submerge into that sub, you know, that sub zero uh, glacial creek, then in some way, whatever argument I have, I'm like, you know what? I was freezing cold a moment ago. I'm fine. So to, to be able to have that where you can work adrenaline and then drain the cortisol and it's okay and we're all okay no matter what so there's a certain again that cheeky muscularity that's involved with it i love that you remind me as well that the sense of individuals collectively responding uh has a a kind of organism you know intelligence yeah and you know i noticed it when I was at Occupy and I was in New York for a little bit, you know, shooting another film and in and, and Occupy Vancouver. And there was already a sense too of like, you know, there was people obviously that were kind of guiding certain aspects of it, but largely as well, it was this emergent, uh, I think Martin Luther King said, beloved community, right? This sense that the need to, to gather in a certain way is the medicine. And, you know, it, like it is the, the thing that we're pointing at. And yet obviously any kind of these occupations happen, there's always like a duress from the system, of course, because you're in the way, right? Like, what do you mean? You guys aren't with the program? You know, get out of the way. Can you speak to a bit of that regulation of this organism and the intelligence of this organism that you've witnessed? There's no replacing life and there's no replacing organism. And you cannot remove the organism out of the wild and expect it to continue to function in a natural way. And it's been such a blessing to have community form throughout this this blockade. But it's also been the greatest challenge, of course. And so us curating, maintaining a community. At times, there has been a village that has was formed here. Uh, uh, Bill Jones's hunting and fishing camp, uh, six kilometers up Granite, Maine, and that is a place where people have uh, built and and had fire and and eaten and uh, stood against industry. So they've maintained themselves and they get exhausted, they get wet, and they lose their sense. 
And really, it's like scuba diving. If you've ever scuba dived, you, you have a buddy because you actually can't bank on your own perspective. Mm. When you have started to lose your faculties is usually the time when you're least aware of it. And so you can be shivering and actually feeling quite warm. <laughs> and so it's for all of us. We have a blessing that this is the last stand. So it's not a special interest group. We have people from every section of society. And so with proportional representation, the promise is, is that it balances and regulates itself. And so we have every age group, every demographic, and the bottom liners, the, the people that are valued the most are the people that will bottom line whatever ideas they bring to the table. And so that is a great way of sorting out who actually has authority, are the people that have the skills. And what I like to say, if I'm pleasurable and useful, then I'm usually asked to stay. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> I'm struck by, too, the, the um, challenges I think that Occupy had, if you were also aware or involved, that there was some hierarchy issues in terms of, you know, there was this almost fetishization of we're all, you know, equal. And oftentimes that would mean that those who had certain skill sets actually weren't well used. Like that was, you know, like somebody with great communications background was like, well, you can't speak for all of us. We don't, we have to go through a whole process about that. And like two weeks later, you know, the media is like, oh, you guys are taking so long. Like, who, who do we talk to, right? And so it's like, uh, and I feel there's, the movements have learned since then of this kind of natural authority can develop. But at least it's one term I've heard, which to me is sort of a more nuanced understanding of hierarchy. Because in some ways, demonization, any kind of hierarchy feels like not as productive, you know, especially when there's certain skill sets or when there's a certain, like again, the, the indigenous elder, Bill Jones, right, would have a certain spiritual authority, I think within, and, and as elders would in any community, you know, that that were, were recognized. And this is, I guess, the other piece too, right, about elders and a lot of modern cultures that they're not recognized. They're sort of like, their usefulness is sort of, that's what's recognized and then maybe it's off to the old folks home. So it's, you know, again, I see it obviously as deep cultural failure, you know, to even like arrange everyone where they're most of service and their, their medicine can be well used. 100%. When humans are advocating for something, they tend to fixate and venerate that one aspect to highlight that. And when anarchy became a word back uh, in our lexicon, you know, when Noam Chomsky said that anarchy is a legitimate and essential part of any system of governance, then it, uh, we, uh, cease to see reintegration again. And so that creating fluid, you know, breaking down a structure that has become imbalanced and that uh, opportunism has taken root and ne it needs to be unearthed again. Absolutely. Anarchy is important. Mm. But when we are needing to meet at a certain time so that we can accomplish a certain uh, job, a certain task, you have to then set that time for that meeting. And so the people then who are granted access to that meeting are the people that have the faculty to show up to that meeting. Mm -hmm. And that those people then have the right to uh, have say within the people that are being influenced by that action, which is themselves. And so that has been really excellent. And we too have stumbled and gotten bogged down by the nebulousness and the cautiousness that we have of uh, taking a clear assessment 
of who has the uh, tendencies that we need for each role. But actually, we're much more like a beehive mm. in allowing that intuition and yielding to the authority of the people that truly are showing those, those capacities. Mm. We have builders that are showing up on site. And we have seen people you know, a- a- attempt to commandeer the work site who lack the authority of the foreman. Mm. And so we, at that time, had to... It, it, it's time to let this foreman take over. This is their job site for today. And so that's a good example of, of uh, because we don't have time to indulge in nebulous open-endedness, mm-hmm. as you were saying, with the media releases around Occupy. We too have been so late just, you know, hippie flailing on things, if you will. <laughs> and so, but because of our love for the old growth, and because also when you're in the old growth, you hear and feel the spirit. And there are people that turn their entire lives around because of one hour in the ancient forest. I've seen it time and time again. And that is them being subordinate and being a channel and dedicating themselves to their elders. And when I first heard Bill Jones speak, the clarity, the balance, the loving invitation, he sorted out my priorities so clearly. Mm-hmm. And there's an arthritis of the soul, and we cease to be able to feel that influence, and therefore we stop um, actually advocating for our access to it. Mm-hmm. So we're fine with them being in their homes away from us, playing cribbage and things like that, you know. Um, but I I'm really excited that we're actually looking. We have a great elder influence here on the blockades. We have a real tradition. And in fact, the Rainforest Flying Squad is not this in this round. We're actually, you know, that's from 20 years ago. Mm. And all of those people that were involved then in the Walbren and mm. Karmana. Mm. Well, I always thought it was a fascinating um, kind of revelation that you know, with this last year or so with COVID and how impacted it felt the old folks' homes have been, right? And how at the same time, you know, here we are in the midst of cutting down some of the last elders here. In some ways, you know, I felt like there was a clear link between that, like that a, that a society that doesn't actually recognize the value of their human elders would not recognize the value of the natural elders either, Wow. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. I found it um, actually very offensive being from Ontario and the Fords. They uh, they underfunded, they gutted the uh, funding for old age care years before, like seven years before COVID hit. And then suddenly the great advocating for it, you know, in the 11th hour, the, the 12th hour. And, but in fact, you know, this is our, our culture is in ruins, and we do know that um, we're orphans. You know, we're uh, many of us are colonial orphans, and we actually walk around with a very silent feeling of of being adrift. And so, some people they call us spiritual tourists. Because we are, we're seeking a global community, uh, not only for inspiration, but skills in different areas. Uh, but we're still in the infant stage of that, or, or at least we're in the adolescent stage of it. 
And so for us to look for how now we can be utilized uh, with the skills. There are so many people here that are drawing from many different areas. And uh, I'm excited to see when spiritual uh, figures come from the different, uh, you know, the different First Nation masters. And they, Bill Jones will look into your eyes and go, you're a child of the forest too, he says to me. We're together with our mother. And it's as simple as that. So the divide is not there. And the maturity of a global culture mm-hmm. is really great. Yeah. Are you familiar with the term conspirituality? Mm, yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, the way that I've... It came out in an article, I think, was written last year. And it's since become a podcast. And I know um, two of the ones that are involved. But just the, the term, my understanding means, it's this linking up between often like a far right uh, crowd and then the spiritualist, you know, kind of like finding this common ground in, in this strange time they're in, you know, and often time it does constellate as anti-vax or anti-COVID and things like that. That's not what I'm interested in. But what I'm tracking is this, it's like there's a longing though for, like you said, a global planetary awakening or planetary culture. And at the same time, this other kind of negative projection of that, which of course is like one world government and technocracy and, and all that stuff. And so it's sometimes it's very difficult to ascertain like which is which you know that a lot of thing comes to me it's had some tweet uh a couple months ago but it was like some guy from the bay and he was something like apocalypse is you know when the sky is red from the forest fires and you can still get an uber to the starbucks oh. or something like that and i was like whoa that's such a great just um capture right of that those two things being both present you know and of course i say utopia is if that's, you know, the consumer model would say that is utopia, you know, oh, you got your Uber, you got your Starbucks. But it's like in the midst of such a global meltdown, you know, of the biosphere. So it's like, how does one even uh, put those two together? Yes. I believe it's, we must look at individuation and the desire for individual freedom and uh, reconciliation on a local scale um, and uh, and also neoliberalism and what used to be the left, which was the advocating for um, for the workers, for the people that that actually filled up the pop, the population, you know, the cannon fodder, if you will. And, and trying to ha- establish a basic line of dignity and life there. And so for me, the right oftentimes has these donors that would never be seen or associate with the people that actually uh, fill up the, the Republican Party, for example. And so you have politics... Most people are just frustrated and they don't know what to do with this polarized. But what they do want is usually they want some type of coordinated effort where they can trust that people are all working together and all have each other's backs. But also there is the other group that craves more individual freedom and the ability to, uh, they're usually feeling very capable and they can do. And, uh, and then you know, you have the surface of that, which are uh, these the globalists that really do have so much funding that we're all just these chess pieces. And so I find it very interesting that uh, both sides are actually really advocating for something that uh, they feel is very moral. 
the difficulty for me is in um, looking for solutions outside of yourself without putting the the onus on yourself to do everything you can. Mm. I am for reconciling the carbon uh, footprint. But myself, I choose to maintain, and I am not, you know, the most mechanically inclined, but I maintain a 25-year-old diesel engine, and I run biodiesel that's locally sourced from restaurants here, and, and I've taken that as one of the creative things that I can do, again, to reconcile something that you may farm out to Elon Musk and say, I, I only choose to run an electric car. But where is that lithium coming from? And can I actually reconcile that? There's no perfect solution in the Kali Yuga and the Dark Age. But there is earnest attempts that we keep doing. Mm-hmm. And so I actually find, uh, you know, I'm interested in the, uh, the dew line between, you know, the, uh, the hick and the hipster. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> the left and the right. Because if we can actually have urban gardens that are sustaining themselves, like is happening in L.A. or Detroit, these are forgotten wastelands, but people are standing up. And so they're right in the middle. They're neither left or right. They're the solution of the moment and in the the region that they're in. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Between the the hick and the hipster. Yeah. (laughs) It also makes me think of the often challenging uh, sort of self-judgment, you know, that comes in with trying to be like the perfect green, which ends up being a sort of puritanism. You know, it's, can, it can be. Yeah, this sort of uh, corner that one's painted themselves into when it's like, oh, I can't do that. Or, um, you know, almond milk. Oh, I can't do almond milk now. You know, wait, what about oat milk? Is oat milk okay now? Can I, can I do anything? You know, can, oh, but I drive the car, but uh, what if I get the bike? But where's the materials? You know, so it's like this never-ending kind of, challenge of course to be the perfect green let's say but if somebody can subjects themselves to it and maybe some don't even bother because they're like well i can't be perfect so what's the point but i wonder again the way you were speaking to that as well that it's a kind of a willingness to lean in and not try to find that a perfect arrival of like now you know i've i'm spiritually green enlightened eco warrior um does that even exist it, you know probably not what a thing and what a an ability then to actually crack the veneer. Perfectionism is a veneer that prevents us from being the student. But as my teacher said, the safest position in the universe is as the student because we're afforded so many opportunities to fail and to continue. And as long as we're earnestly leaning in to reconciliation and trying and trying and trying. And uh, when we're out of the city, because the city, they have provided this green washed situation. You know, you put your 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 uh, plastic packaging here, it gets shipped off there. So I feel fine with that. I step on my electric train, it goes here, and then I feel fine with that. I go to this park, and these trees are protected, I feel fine with that. Mm. So, it, But it's going into where is actually the actions happening. And because we are truly at, um, we're in an epic, 
right now. And so for us to find ourselves on the front lines of whatever struggle is happening and then try to reconcile ourselves, mm-hmm. try to do recycling in the middle of Port Renfrew, you know, a, a very remote town. You know, actually the recycling here is incredible. He sorts through everything. <laughs> but uh, try to, um, you know, staying, staying local, staying vegetarian uh, at times, it, you know, when you're trying to eat in the bush can be a real struggle. Or when you realize that most vegetables is actually, uh, you know, at this point it's fertilized with fish meal. And so, you know, this uh, type of being willing to crack into the uh, dichotomies that are going on within every situation, it's actually quite fun, you know, to try to stack your reconciles. You know, I have 12 hours of the 24 that are actually reconciled. This feels fantastic, you know. Uh, and so I try to reconcile, take back the clock mm. and take take back my activities. And they're always changing. The permaculturalist lands in a, a situation, empties themselves of their preconceived solutions, mm-hmm. and then actually reads the situation and tries to capitalize on what's already happening. And that to me is is true. That's the uh, the opposite of chauvinism is to arrive to a situation, see what's already happening, and try to capitalize on the good that's happening. Yeah, I'd love to hear then what is the what is the strategy here? You know, with the blockade now again in this specific place, as both this local situation and then also part of a broader you know, um, frame, like, cause some people might say too, like, well, what's the, yeah, what is the strategy? I mean, is it obviously to stop these trees and then what, or, you know, I'd love a glimpse into that. We are working to bring light to a situation that has been happening for decades, hundreds of years at this point on Vancouver Island and, uh, old growth logging is still happening. So we are here to bring the world's eyes back out into the woods and actually to see the situation. The logging industry has come back, uh, a rebuttal to our criticism, saying that they are uh, actually very environmental and do everything that they can to steward this land. And we're saying, okay, we will not say initially no, but we will have the world's eyes in uh, your um, work site so that you can see how the world's uh, wilderness is actually being treated. And so that is our uh, main focus. And so we are um, also providing the opportunity for people to stand up and actually curate their own blockade their own civil disobedience so that the frustration that people feel that every letter every phone call that i make does not get through these people are coming out now regular people and so we're here to curate that and to allow that to happen Uh, because people this is the to respond to their survival and what they believe in is a natural instinct for humans. So we're wanting to do that in a, uh, a, a, a calm, safe, COVID-friendly, awesome way. And, you know, how can you be more awesome and be the star of your own movie? Because really, this is the summation of, of most everyone's um, 
childhood uh, play fantasies. They wanted to stand up and be the rightful one, you know, the Lorax. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, and, and so it's been very exciting to see that we're, we're actually expanding now. There are so many fronts. There's a, uh, a quilt work, really. They are uh, clear-cutting in, li- in little patches. We uh, ha- have a sign behind us that says, A Death by a Thousand Clear Cuts. So as um, there are the in- industry is going to different areas to get the last bit of this 2% of the old growth here, the high production old growth. Um, there are splinter groups that are, that are going off. We are not one group. We really are the populace up- uprising at the same time. And so it, it's what anonymous really, it, it's anonymous of the woods and that's very exciting, mm. is that there are people that are all willing to say, I take responsibility, I am actually the organizer in this moment. And then the next moment someone says, I am the rainforest flying squad, and I stand for not only the trees, but the wilderness. 97% of BC mm. is a tree farm. And we may be mesmerized for a moment when we're driving in our Priuses that there's brown on the bottom and green on the top. But it doesn't make the actual wilderness and the, uh, the habitat for beings that are not human. So it's great to see people coming out and advocating for something that is not human. It really is wonderful. You made me realize, actually, the power of myth, like within this um, generation, I think, right? Because, I mean, I grew up, uh, I was born in 81, so I was sort of a, I think I just got into the millennials, you know, out of the Gen Xs. But uh, how the, you mentioned the Lorax, of course, right? And for me, it was like, you know, Dark Crystal. And, I mean, you mentioned uh, Smurfs even before. I think they had environmental, you know, baked in too. Yeah, and how much, feels like this generation, or at least the ones now, you know, of an age to engage in this way, you know, we're, we're really planted or pollinated, you know, by media that came out in th- that time. So in some ways I'm recognizing how it's like there's this intergenerational mythological long game, you know, that, that is so necessary. It feels like, uh, especially like I mentioned earlier with Bill Plotkin's take that intact cultures, you know, you don't have the separation happen between the children and their eco-consciousness. But in this culture, it's like it needs to be, uh, planted and almost like, yeah, uh, pollinated years in advance. Uh, so it has its way. And I can, you know, I can't even throw a can away or not. I can't put a can not in recycling without feeling this like devastating. What? You just don't do that. Right. And, and I really feel like it is this eco-consciousness that was, uh, so part of my childhood. And even now, what are the myths that we're telling, right? Our kids, I have a two and a half year old and, you know, he's been in more sort of group process circles and ceremony at two and a half than I was by 30. Yes. And so oh. I wonder, yeah, I wonder too, I'm like, what is he going to be like, you know, in 20 years? I mean, I'm hoping he'll be an eco ninja, you know, and, and maybe so. And so I just wonder again, yeah, for you, how was myth uh, part of your, mm, the frames and how do you see myth being so important now in terms of, yeah, what do we, what mythological imagery do we invoke as well, right? As we inspire people to join Yes, the hero's journey truly is the great, uh, uh, the great storyline of uh, he, uh, of this world, but also the child of nature as well, and serving the mother and uh, and her needs, and also yeah, to have the sleeping, uh, you know, 
all of these future tensing uh, film that we see, The Matrix, are uh, being plugged into a uh, situation, given influences to be satisfied with, but then growing dissatisfied. And dissatisfaction is the greatest e emotion to invoke us to go on the journey, get on the road. And so literally we have been now for the last eight months inhabiting that archetype. And uh, we, we see the people that are oftentimes inhabiting the blockades as being people who um, follow that storyline, that they are bound to a journey, that, that they feel frightened. But that courage is not the absence of fear, but to do something in the midst of it and that they are uh, moving forward. The dark crystal really is about the fusing so that you can have uh, this whole being. And for me, Bill Jones was a logger, big wood logger. Um, and, uh, some, some wonderful people, um, Joe Martin, who is a, a great influencer within this movement, uh, a carver and elder in, uh, Tofino area, very famous. He too was a big tree logger, but there was the, the awakening and the, and the moving and they were in, you know, they, they were broken and then, then found. Mm. And so that was fantastic. What's also exciting is that we have a lot of circle culture here. We have the, the sacred fire. We have the power of ritual. We have the power of, of staying connected with the rituals of the bush life. We have, we have a lot of bushcrafters that carry their own myths. And so, and every myth has, how do you survive in the woods with other people while accomplishing things and feeling inspired day after day after day after day and so we have a lot of uh you know our myths also include the crafts that go along with that so we have a lot of song we have a lot of weaving and uh we have a lot of uh cultural sharing amongst the communities too and it's wonderful to see also the first nation bring their craft into the region again and really re replant their their roots back into the areas over time and in their ways. Yeah, you know, the, the potted plant. Uh, lots of people, we're all a bit of a potted plant. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, how do we <laughs> bring our potted plant and put it back into the wilderness to thrive? What would you say to the listener then, whether they're local and, and possibly could come down or they're listening somewhere in the world and they want to be involved or they want to they feel that call you know to rise to engage and again whether it is with this particular uh, circumstance or wherever they are like, what do you say to them yeah know that if it's going on here it's most likely going on there where you are and that is one of the first things it, when i got involved in the salmon fight i was shocked scotland has a, a salmon farm issue yeah I was shocked. And so to see that there was a global movement, a shared suffering. And so whatever your front line is, 
it's your responsibility to act in whatever way you can to help with that. For us, it's to stay involved and really uh, you know, take in some of our media, feel that uh, I- impact of it. Of course, we have our GoFundMe, uh, uh, and we have the Last Stand for Ancient Forests. Uh, you know, so that is their LastStandForForest.com, which, which of course you'll link to. Um, and so, be a part of that sharing. Be a part of the conversation and uh truly we are um of course looking for support uh if you are able and wanting to throw down if this is a pilgrimage spot fantastic we are here to facilitate your uprising and uh and also we just come and take a uh, walk in the woods as bill jones would say Thank you for that invitation. And I can just say from being here the last few days as well and being up to the trees here at, behind the blockade that it was profound. And and I feel yeah, more tuned to just what's at stake. And and the company and the people that show up with their hearts, you know, really open and activated and, and with a deep love is uh, is a profound medicine. So I, I would encourage anyone to, who can to come. Oh, thank you so much for being a part of our community and and having uh, the hunger for these conversations. That uh, is truly a blessing. Thank you, Yogi Shambhu. Mm, always. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com network to learn more. <laughs>